Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Um, and let's pray for Mark. Mark, come on up. Um, and let's pray for Mark uh, as he brings the word today. Lord, first of all, thank you that Mark is here um, to the uh, sharing your word to us today. Uh, open our hearts, our minds to your word. Uh, let us understand with discernment uh, what you have to share with us today. And bless Mark, not just uh, as he brings the message, but uh, his journey forth as he serves you and ministers your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we, how are we all doing? Yeah? Yeah, good? <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, Alistair and Jason were like, hey, Hey, you know what? You know what? Let's have a serious, meaty sermon the morning that Mark comes. So, so uh, if <laughs> uh, prepare to, you know, uh, engage and hopefully uh, you, you can get something out of this. Um, so, um, it's it's uh, this is one of those, yeah, meaty sermons. So, if you want to know who I am, I'm Mark. I'm friends, good friends with Alistair. Uh, we've been good friends for a long time. I'm actually at Massey because of Alistair. So, I, I, uh, I. I blame him every day for that. Yeah, um, but it's great. It's great. I love it there, and I love being here. And so let us begin. So as our New Zealand society rapidly changes, the new ways of thinking brought about by this change inevitably influences the thinking of Christians. In what is becoming an alien and sometimes hostile culture, the church needs to keep a watchful eye on itself so that we remain faithful to Christ and the gospel, good stewards of the grace entrusted to us. The New Testament is very clear about false teachings being a threat to the very gospel itself and to the health and effectiveness of the church. Down through the centuries, the church has always needed to be vigilant against distortions of the faith that can lead believers astray. If we don't remain vigilant, false teachings can readily undermine orthodox Christian faith from within the church itself. Now, I imagine at St. Andrews, just at Massey, we try to be positive. You know, we like to talk about more about what we're for than what we are against. And most of the time, that's a really good thing. But sometimes, as Jesus points out here in our passage, we also need to talk about what we're against so that we can properly discern. And sometimes, when it comes to our culture, we're not really discerning well. 
We're such pragmatic, practical people that we don't recognize a bad idea when we see it. And if we can't recognize bad ideas, it becomes very easy to become deceived. And so, one of my jobs today is to shepherd the way you think so that you can't easily be deceived. And that's what today is kind of all about. So, Jesus begins by saying in verse 15, watch out! Right? Other translations say, beware. Jesus starts out with a warning. And those of us who know, know the power of a warning. I remember when I was a kid, there was a big debate about the seatbelt law. You know the law which requires vehicle occupants to wear seatbelts? Did you have that debate here? Right? Um, well, my home province in Canada was the last province to pass seatbelt laws in 1987. And as a little kid, I was bombarded with propaganda on TV and then at school warning us about seatbelts. And so whenever I got in a car with my parents, like a little know-it-all, backseat driver, you know, I'd warn my parents, you better wear your seatbelt or, or you're not wearing your seatbelt, right? Just as kids love to do. Well, one day we were going out and I was the one who forgot to put on my seatbelt. And I'd started to think, meh, maybe it's a dumb law. Because at the time, and I looked this up, 75% of Albertans, which is my province, uh, were against the law. Well, my mom gave me a stern warning. Why aren't you wearing your seatbelt, Mark? I thought it's important. And I was like, okay, fine. And not even five minutes later, we got into a horrific car accident that changed all our lives forever. But that's another story. But if I hadn't had that seatbelt on, I'd 100% be dead. And I've thought about that ever since. Why is it important that you listen to warnings? My mom looked at me, said, beware, you better watch out because hurt is going to come and you will not flourish if you don't pay attention to my warnings. And this is what Jesus is doing here. This is the level of stakes Jesus is getting at. Beware, watch out, because if you don't heed my warning, something really, really bad might happen. Jesus isn't just about being kind and fluffy you know, so, so many people have the idea that, oh, Jesus, such a nice guy. Be like Jesus. And it's like, yes, he was a nice guy. Awesome. He loved people. But they also crucified him. Why? Because he taught against the ruling ideas of his time. He was a preacher who said, look, you've got to beware of some stuff. There are some things that are going to actually take you off course in a bad, bad way. And so Jesus says, watch out, beware, false prophets. In other words, beware of people like me. Right? Amen? Yes, right? People who can manipulate you from a stage. People who are in the lights and they're leading you and they sometimes got a Bible in their hand. And they're not obviously bad people. They're not obviously heretics. In fact, Jesus talks about the idea that they come to you in what? Sheep's clothing, bah, right on, oh, little lambing, right? But they lead you in bad ideas. 
and you can't really tell all that much. And see, this passage is about being careful of influencers, people on the internet who have your attention, people who, uh, who give you theology and philosophy and worldview and ideas. And Jesus is saying, stop being so naive. There are people who intentionally deceive, and there are people who them, them themselves are deceived, deceiving others. And they exist, unfortunately, in the PCANZ, but even if not, they're definitely online. And they pitch all kinds of ideas to you about politics and philosophy and theology. And we watch their TikTok videos and we watch their Instagram reels or we watch their YouTube channels or we listen to their podcasts or we listen to their music or radio or TV programs. And they are out to deceive us intentionally or unintentionally. And so Jesus is going, I need you all to watch out. Have your eyes open. There are some people that you got to watch out for. And they're in the world, and they're among us. They're people who are teachers and pastors and preachers and bloggers and authors and leaders and worship leaders, and they were in the early church too. I mean, half of the letters of the New Testament are written to churches to address false teaching. Paul says in Acts 20, verse 29 to 30, when leaving the Ephesian church, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, people will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Because what we are in is a war of ideas. Constantly, the world is out to give you bad information. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, the education system, it's filled with all sorts of bad information, not only about politics or the news or gossip, but especially about God and the gospel, and especially about yourself and the nature of who you are and the essence of who you are and what your job is in the world and how salvation works. And so there's a discernment that needs to take place. And Jesus is saying, you got to watch out for these false prophets. And then Jesus says, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And so the image of the false prophet that Jesus is giving is an incense, incense, a shepherd. They're a leader or an influencer of some sort. And so this isn't so much about a, a regular Joe, it's about teachers and leaders in the church. Now, let's quickly go through some of the different areas that false teachers are going to try to deceive you in today's context. Every one of these false teachings could be an entire sermon in itself, but today it's just about giving you an overview. So the first area relates to the nature of God. False teachers often mess with Trinitarian theology. True Christianity proclaims God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one being. Three who's, one what. The unity and diversity within the Trinity is foundational to comprehending God's intrinsic nature as love. Unlike a unitary God who could only experience or express love for something outside itself once it creates something, the Trinity is love even before creation, because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had an eternal dance of love from eternity past. 
Consider human love. There's intimate face-to-face and partnership love serving others. To be complete love, then, God must eternally encapsulate both forms, face-to-face and partnership loving a third. A duo entity God could experience interpersonal love, but only the Trinity permits both interpersonal and partnership love of another intrinsically in its very nature. And so this suggests, even without Scripture, that God's full manifestation of love requires a triune nature. And deviating from this belief compromises understanding God as love. A unitary God thus can't be love like 1 John 4.16 teaches. He can only be loving once he creates something. And thus before creation, love is only a potential in a unitary God. And thus the minute you start to stray from a trinity, you're off on the wrong foot, especially if you think God being love is important. And you can boil most heresy down to what people's view of the Trinity or what people's view of Jesus is. Is Jesus God or not, right? And so when those guys dressed in the nice suits come to your door and you hide from them because, you know, you don't want to have this conversation, you know, what is the conversation about? It's about the very nature of the Trinitarian God and about Jesus Christ in particular. Is he God or is he not God? You can solve a lot of world religious debates by just answering those very questions. Is God a trinity and who Jesus is? Second, salvation is often portrayed in various ways. Through good works, the five pillars, reincarnation, the eightfold path to peace, social justice, or the environment. However, the gospel declares that salvation is by grace not works. And this concept that salvation comes purely through faith and grace is the cornerstone of Christianity. It isn't about our actions, but Christ's sacrifice. Actions are key, but they are the result of salvation, not the source. And why is this important? Well, here's one of many reasons. In our diverse culture, religious exclusivity can be a point of contention. Why claim Christ as the only way to God? The answer lies in the nature of grace. Because some argue that any good individual, regardless of faith, can find God. But this stance implies salvation hinges on our deeds. This perspective inherently favors the morally upright and disadvantages those who have faltered. If salvation is based on works, what happens to the morally struggling, those who can't perform, or those on their deathbed who have made a mess of their life? Yet the beauty of Christ's message is its inclusivity. Although it seems exclusive, it's grace that ensures all the rich, poor, moral paragons or moral failures have access to God. And altering this message risks propagating a false gospel. Thirdly, concerning heaven, many claim everyone goes to heaven eventually. Everyone is resurrected to live in the new heaven and the new earth. And this belief, known as universalism, is ancient. You know, you'll hear that it's, oh, such an ancient belief of the church. 
but it's ancient because it's one of the church's first heresies. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it would seem to be great that universalism was true. But the reality is, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, through the Orthodox Church Fathers, all the way through to the time of the scholar Origen, around 220 AD, there is a loud, clear, and consistent emphasis on precisely the opposite of universal salvation. Specifically, there is a focus on the condemnation and the perpetual exclusion of those who fail to repent of evil doing in this life. Now, is that eternal conscious torment? Is it annihilation? How do you reconcile the metaphors of hellfire and total darkness? Is hell locked from within? Do we keep sinning in hell? What is hell actually like? That's all a genuine discussion. But asserting the certainty of universalism is a false teaching. A fourth sign is a false teaching is that marriage gets redefined. The Bible comes down and says the core of marriage is one male, one female, one flesh for one lifetime with a procreative element. And this perspective on sexual ethics was pivotal for early Christians, distinguishing them notably within the Roman world. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council instructed Gentile believers to abstain from sexual immorality, pornea in the Greek, as a key guideline for their conduct within the church. Right? So this was like, how do we bring Gentiles in? Well, we'll remove all this, but this one thing we're going to keep, along with uh, not eating meat with blood in it. Now, pornea is a term rooted in and defined by Leviticus 18, which prohibits illicit relations outside traditional male-slash-female marriage. And although early Christians did away with Jewish ceremonial laws like dietary restrictions and clothing laws, they maintained the strong sexual ethic around marriage and the prohibitions of pornea defined by Leviticus 18. Jesus, while flexible on various Jewish customs, doubled down and intensified sexual ethics regarding adultery, marriage, and lust. The core Christian view of marriage is one of the very few absolutely universal beliefs of the Christian church across all denominations and traditions until about five minutes ago. Now, someone might not like the fact that this is what Christ and the early church taught, for example, someone might think it morally abhorrent or intellectually indefensible, but that Jesus and the early church did in fact teach a strong, clear sexual ethic is beyond any reasonable doubt, and any teaching otherwise is straight up false. Fifthly is the claim that the Bible, even when properly understood, isn't true or the word of God. You will hear all these types of phrases about the Bible. The Bible's just some ancient book. Don't pay attention to it anymore. It doesn't have authority in your life. It just, it just teaches all these contradictory things. It's just a book containing humanity's thoughts about God and is really just a tool to reflect on God, not Him communicating with us. It's so freeing to view the Bible as this tapestry of different theology and teaching and not have to try to read it in some unifying way. The Bible just contains the Word of God. It's not the Word of God, or only Jesus is the Word of God, which is especially popular today. 
deceived because there's been a wolf in sheep's clothing that's walked in and given them the right manipulative tools to make them believe some stuff that they never thought they were going to believe. And they didn't even know they were going to believe it. So don't get angry at the people embracing the deception. Be angry at the deception. Now, there's another version of this. It's not just what false teachers emphasize. It's also what they de-emphasize. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, said, We have somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. So it's not just emphasizing the wrong things, but not emphasizing the right things, right? So Ezekiel talks about false prophets, and he says this in Ezekiel 13.10, they lead my people astray, the they being false prophets, saying peace where there is no peace. And so the false prophet, the false teacher says peace, peace, everything's fine. So this is how it might sound today, peace. There's no such thing as hell or eternal judgment. So don't worry about it. Peace. Peace. God isn't mad at anybody. He's love. He never gets angry at you. He has no wrath for you. Peace. Peace. There's no such thing as sin. We don't need to talk about sin. It makes people feel bad. It hurts our witness. Peace. Peace. A noted writer commented, false prophets talk much about the love of God, but nothing of his holiness. Much about people who are deprived, but nothing about those who are depraved. Much about God's universal fatherhood of every human being, but nothing about his unique fatherhood only of those who are his children through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Much about what God will give to us, but nothing about obedience to him. Much about health and happiness, but nothing about holiness and sacrifice. Their message is a message of gaps, the greatest gap of which leaves out the truth that saves. Here's the thing. If I don't tell you about sin, then you're never going to need a savior. If you don't understand that you're sinful, then you're never going to want to fly to Jesus. See, a gospel without convincing you of your sin seems to me to be aimed at a non-Christian or Christian who has basically led a relatively good life. They've not killed anyone, not abused anyone, and this non-Christian or Christian is likely to be offended at being told they are a sinner who needs to repent or that God is angry at them. This no-sin gospel is also particularly aimed at people who perhaps struggle with false guilt. For example, people who have been victims of abuse or who wrongly blame themselves for it or feel extremely guilty for a minor mistake. What this non-sin gospel does is aim to put an arm around people and say, they're there. God doesn't think you're bad. God isn't angry at you. It seeks not to offend people. Now, the problem is, of course, that that form of the gospel has nothing to say to someone who actually has murdered someone or abused someone or made a mess of their life. It's no good telling that person, don't worry, 
God isn't really angry at you. God isn't worried that you killed someone. No, he just loves you anyway. It doesn't matter. No, for them, you need a gospel which says, yes, God is absolutely furious with you. He can't bear to look at your horrible sin. And yet, because of his great overwhelming love for you, he died for you so you could be set free, so you could be forgiven. You are not beyond redemption. Except that's the same gospel for all of us. There is only one gospel. There isn't a two-tier gospel for nice people and nasty people. And so if there's going to be a gospel that brings hope to the worst of people, we need to remember that sin and judgment is an important part of the Christian, Christian equation. So how do you prevent yourself from being taken in by false teachers? Well, we need to learn from the Bereans. Acts 17.11 says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The Bereans were more noble because they examined Paul's teaching with the Bible and made sure the preacher was telling the truth. Do you do that with me? Right? <laughs> do you do that with Jason and Alistair? Right? Because you definitely should. You should do it with me and anyone else who you receive teaching from. But you should definitely do it with me. Right? You know, I worked in a, in a bank for a very short period of time. And the way they teach you how to figure out what a counterfeit bill was, at least back when I worked at a bank, you know, 15 years ago, is you don't actually study counterfeit bills. You handle so many real bills that when you see or feel a counterfeit, you know what it looks and feels like. You hear a false teaching, immediately, bang, red flag goes up. So theologically, your best bet against these false prophets is studying the Bible for yourself. Not just using podcasts or hearing other preachers or reading the church fathers. That's all great. That's good. But in today's day and age, you need to be reading the Bible yourself. Because the Bible is the actual authority that we have in our lives. And so that's the ultimate question. Are you going to let the Bible be an authority in your life? Remember, these false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing, right? Like it's not obvious, like, if I got up here and just went, hey, guys, welcome to St. Andrews. We don't believe the Bible, and Jesus ain't God. Woo! Right? You know? You'd be like, what? Say, what? what? Right? Too obvious. Sheep's clothing. You know why people believe these false prophets? You know, shortly after I became a Christian, I almost became a Mormon. I live in Mormon land in Canada. Uh, Utah's like south of where I am. Anyway, I was searching for the one true church. You know, I became a new Christian. It's like, well, which church should I join now, right? Because I, I actually became Christian through a missionary. Now, a Mormon missionary, like a legit missionary, but anyway. Long story, other sermon, whatever. Okay. And I met the nicest people on the planet, the Mormons. There is no doubt in my mind. They are the nicest people on the planet. And that's why a lot of people follow false prophets, because they're nice people, right? False prophets are rarely ghouls, right? They're not, blah, 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 like, like, 
You're never going to get anybody to believe your ideas if you're a ghoul, right? Sheep's clothing. And then Jesus ends this way. Verse 18. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Man, you know what I love? Jesus gives us the image of fire. And fire, the gospel says, is exactly what we all deserve, the judgment of God. And left to ourselves, that's what we get. But Jesus Christ died on a tree so that we would never have to feel that fire. He died on a cross for our sin. And by going into the scriptures and focusing on Jesus, we can be people who hopefully never get deceived by these false prophets. <coughs> Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your sermon on the mount and how you end the sermon here. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we wrestle with the false teachings that exist in our, in our churches and in our society, Lord, that we would always hunger for truth, always hunger for wisdom and discernment, that we would wrestle with your scriptures so that we can discern and know what is true and recognize false prophets from true prophets. And I pray for those here who might not consider themselves Christian, Lord. I pray that they would come to know the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the gospel that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray they would come to know you and that your spirit would work on them and they would experience the love and peace and joy that so many else here have through your gospel. I thank you for St. Andrews and I pray that you would bless this church and allow it to continue to be a city shining on a hill, bringing your truth and light to the surrounding area. We thank you again for the grace and gospel we have in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your most beautiful name. Amen.